Good morning, everyone. I am here today with Dr. Sarah Palmer, who is a assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at Indiana University, and she is here today to talk with us about adolescent medicine. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about the teenager, who is sometimes like my most difficult patient, but I know that you spend a lot of time with them, so I'm glad you're here to talk to us today. I do enjoy teenagers, and I think um, it's a specialty, but it, it also should be something every pediatrician is good at and comfortable with. So. I agree. And... The boards also really like uh, adolescent medicine. It actually accounts for 4%, which is a large number when it comes to the percentage sure. for boards. And we're going to hopefully cover most of it today, so everyone should pay attention. Let's start with what kind of things start changing in puberty that make them an adolescent? Adolescent physical development is defined um, by stages. It can be called Tanner staging, or it also might be called sexual maturity rating, or abbreviated as SMR. So if you see that, that's the same thing. And the first signs of of sexual maturity in girls is usually pubic hair, or it could be some breast development. Pubic hair, average age, can be as, as young as late 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds. Um, the average is probably more like 11-year-olds, um, and it can be a little bit different based on some racial differences. Um, in boys, the very first sign of physical Puberty, puberty development is testicular enlargement, okay. and that happens before anything else. Okay. When do we expect, like, breast development to start? Uh, it really depends. That usually starts after adrenarche, so we call that thelarche, and I'd say average age for that is, again, can be as early as 9, okay. and, but more likely average 11 to 12. So let's talk about the Tanner stages. What is Tanner stage one? Okay, so stage one is really prepubertal. So no changes at all have started. There's really no pubic hair, no breast development, and the, the penis size for a, a male is pre-adolescent. Okay, and what about two? Okay, so for pubic hair, stage two, it's kind of the same for both male and female where you have just a sparse um, distribution of maybe some long, dark hairs. And if you really wanted to, you could count them. Okay. So Okay, so countable. They're countable. Tanner's mm-hmm. tissue. All right, Tanner 3? Tanner 3, they're, they're still straight hairs. Okay. Um, but they're maybe a few too many to count. Um, and they are really medial. They haven't spread laterally yet. Okay. So and then four, probably they start to spread laterally. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and four, they are becoming curly. Okay. So you have some curliness of the hairs. They become more coarse, a general increase in number, and you're going to be spreading laterally across the mons, okay. pubis, and, and laterally toward the toward the thighs, but not onto the thighs. Okay. And stage five is full. And stage five is a triangular pattern, and in, in women it might go up on the abdomen a little bit. In men it definitely would in a triangular kind of pattern, and then definitely out toward and maybe onto the thighs. Where does the breast tanner staging kind of correlate? So again, SMR1 is prepubertal, a very juvenile breast with, with, you might have a little bit of an elevated nipple, but the you have a flat areola. At stage two, you have a little bit of a breast bud, and that can be asymmetrical. You can have a little tender nodule on one side and nothing on the other side, and asymmetry is very common at this age. It's a small mound. The areola begins to enlarge. 
Stage three, you're elevating the breast bud. There's no separation of the areola and the breast bud. Stage four, you have a secondary mound, and that's what really differentiates stage four. Um, over the breast, you have a mound of the areola over that. And stage five is, is completely mature. Some women don't progress to stage five until well into adulthood or when they have a first child. And that's where the papilla projects and the, the secondary mound recedes into the breast. So you may not get there, you know, until you, until you lactate even. Breast staging is important for females because it really correlates with menarche. Oh, so okay. stage three very much correlates with menarche being very soon. So if, the, if, the, if, if a girl is in stage three, I tell them it's going to probably be within six months to maybe up to a year. Um, but it's, it's very, very much correlates with menarche. Okay. Six months to a year after stage three-ish. Usually. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you said that if they have like a little breast mass, that's normal development. Yeah. A little tender mass in girls or boys in, um, in the stage, in the early stages of puberty, stage two to three is very normal. Some tenderness can be normal. Okay. So I went to middle school once and it's awful. And I imagine that most kids have a fairly similar feeling about middle school. You're changing and you're awkward. So can we talk about kind of the psychological development of adolescence and kind of the changes that we see in family dynamics and all that kind of things that make the teenager a teenager? Uh, Sure. I like to think about phases of adolescence. I like to think about early adolescence, middle adolescence, and late adolescence. So most of your middle school and even late elementary children are in early adolescence. They're having rapid growth, which is associated with those early Tanner stages of sexual maturity. They are beginning to look like an adult, but they're still having a lot of brain development going on. So they're not acting like an adult yet. They are really preoccupied with their bodies. And so often when they come in for a doctor's visit, they will have lots of little things that they are worried about because they're changing rapidly. And you have a lot of, if you go to, for instance, a seventh grade, you're going to have so many different shapes and sizes of, of students. So, you know, the very sexually mature, early matures are going to be very tall and maybe have more expectations, you know, put on them than some of the later developers who can, who can be very small and, and, you know, have, have some feelings about their body in that way too. Okay. When, what would you consider, like, middle? Is that more starting would, high school? I would say middle adolescence is usually age 14, 15, so it's okay. going to be your 8th graders, early high school students, um, and they're they're progressing in, in how they think. The early adolescents are still thinking very concretely. Middle adolescents, they may be still thinking concretely, but they're starting to imagine more about their future. This is the age of magical thinking, so they really you know, have a lot of dreams for the future, maybe engage in risky behaviors because they feel like something bad can't happen to them because it's that magical thinking. They may not, they, they really are interested in their peer group. They're looking to their peers for most of their cues. And um, so they may not be completely realistic about their goals and about about their future. The late adolescent is more the, the later high school student, the 17, 18 year old. They are often getting much more abstract in their thinking. They are getting more realistic in their thinking also. And this is where you can really begin to talk about, you know, future goals based on, based on reality. Um, They become interested in one-on-one relationships. So serious romantic relationships are the norm in later adolescence. Okay. 
And do they tend to have uh, changes in their family dynamics at all, in their family relationships? What I tell residents is the very typical body posture for a 14-year-old girl is that her legs are crossed, she's on her phone, and she's faced away from her mother. Okay. And the mother is in the chair with her legs crossed the other way, faced away from the daughter. So it's it's typical and it's normal with that, especially that middle adolescence, I think, to have some some tension as okay. the as the as the student is trying to trying to form their own identity. The uh, oftentimes, I think what bring what makes all of us as pediatricians nervous is the talking to them about their sexual behavior and experimentation that often happens in uh, adolescence. So. Kind of how do you talk to parents about that and kind of recommendations for counseling? Well, I, I would say it's good to start around age 11, 12 and introduce the idea of talking to the, to the patient alone. Um, some, some families can be a little resistant to this. I think if you introduce the idea maybe the year before you're planning to do it for sure, that would be good. Ask students, you know, or patients if they have romantic interests early on. Another nice question to ask <clears throat> for a young adolescent is, what are your friends doing? Are any of your friends dating? Are any of your friends interested in this? And that can lead to a conversation about what they're interested in. And you can get a feel if it's on their radar yet. How do you approach the subject of contraception? Well, we use a written questionnaire for each of our well visits. You need to think about consent and confidentiality at all ages. In the state of Indiana, students can, or patients can consent to treatment of sexually transmitted infections at the age of 14. And most physicians extrapolate that to contraception you could talk about privately with patients. You know, if, if as you talk to them, they seem like they are interested in proceeding to sexual activity, or if you know that there has been some sexual activity, you know, I strongly encourage thinking about contraception. And in most cases, I really encourage a conversation with the parent. If it seems impossible, then we'll talk about ways to proceed confidentially. But I try to be realistic with the 14, 15-year-old girl who may want to do it confidentially. You know, can you come to the doctor without your parent knowing? Can you go to the pharmacy without them knowing? And really try to talk with them about those ramifications about doing contraception without their parents' notice. So my goal is to facilitate a conversation with the parent. While we're on the topic of contraception, let's discuss oral contraceptives, so the OCP. These are often used for other medical conditions, including PCOS, endometrial cancers, dysfunctional uterine bleeding, irregular menses. It should be noted that there are several absolute contraindications to starting oral contraceptives. Number one would be pregnancy, so you should check for pregnancy. Uncontrolled hypertension prior to starting these medications as it's a common side effect. Cardiovascular disease, history of blood clots, so DVT, PE, or known thromboembolic disease, so things like factor V Leiden or other conditions that would put them at risk for blood clots. And then don't forget liver disease and migraine with aura. I often feel that adolescents have a lot of stress. What kind of things in an encounter make you feel like they're more stressed than they should be and or having higher anxiety or depression, mental health illnesses? Well, it's good to do a one or two question depression screen for, for everybody at a yearly physical. We have a one question on our global questionnaire about do you feel sad, down, 
depressed or hopeless. And uh, it's good to have at your fingertips a PHQ-2 or a PHQ-9 to go forward if you feel like um, there are some signs of depression or anxiety. If a patient is very quiet, doesn't have much to say, if they are having sudden changes in their school performance, that can be a, a sign of anxiety, depression. If they are having a lot of school absences, you know, school is the work of the student. And so if that's suffering, that often points to some mental health issues. And then changes in the family. Um, sometimes you can pick up on stress or anxiety in the parent, and you can kind of talk to the, to the patient about how that might be affecting them. What about eating disorders is another kind of common mental illness in adolescents. How do you, what kinds of signs do you look for for that, or appropriate management of those things? Well, signs, I think you would look for weight loss. You'd look for a, a body mass index under 18 is definitely underweight, and or sudden weight loss from a from an overweight child. Often the parent comes and reports that they are, are seeing some signs of, of eating changes. Um, sometimes the student or the patient will, will not eat with the family. Sometimes you'll find that they are cutting out whole food groups, you know, just no carbs on, ever. Right, exactly. Or just no fat or uh-huh. eating only vegetables. So some of those extremes of of dietary restrictions. What does it does I know there's some changes that occur with their menstruation their menstruation if they're with anorexia. How do you kind of get at that in the history? Well, you may see amenorrhea fairly fairly early actually if they're losing a lot of weight. It's just the body's way of protecting itself. So amenorrhea and that's part of the female triad that you can also see with athletes who are exercising a lot, maybe limiting their intake. So amenorrhea, anorexia, and osteoporosis can often go together, and that's classically called the female triad. Okay, good. I feel like people tend to ask those questions oh, a lot. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Pay attention. Female triad. Again, that's the female triad, sometimes called the negative energy triad, and is seen in female athletes and is often exercise-induced. The three things are amenorrhea, osteoporosis, and disordered eating. Do you do you see the same kind of amenorrhea with bulimia as you do with anorexia nervosa? Uh, it depends. With bulimia, often you might just see physical signs of purging, which include maybe teeth enamel problems. You might see um, calluses on the hands okay. from purging. You might have some gastritis, things like that. Often bulimic girls don't, or boys, don't um, lose as much weight as with anorexia. So you often don't get to amenorrhea. So while we're talking about amenorrhea, uh, exercise-induced amenorrhea is a form of secondary amenorrhea. Can we talk a little bit more about secondary amenorrhea? Sure. Well, secondary amenorrhea is after a menstrual cycle has been established, having at least three months of no periods. Now, this is keeping in mind that in the in the first two years after menarche, it's very common to have some anovulatory cycles. So some irregular bleeding, maybe missing a few months, is very common. But after the menstrual cycle is established, you may run into secondary amenorrhea. One of the most common causes of that? The most common cause is pregnancy. Shock. So that's the Shocking. first thing you want to look for is a pregnancy test. <laughs> and then, I, in general, I think hypothalamic kind of... So we talked about exercise. Uh, we talked about anorexia. Just stress, you know, a very a very stressed person with depression or anxiety can have some amenorrhea as a result of that. And then polycystic ovarian syndrome is the, is the most common, the next most common thing we see. A little extra on PCOS, polycystic ovary disease. 
This should be suspected in any female who has amenorrhea plus obesity and acne. The diagnosis can be made on lab values, which are an LH to FSH ratio greater than 2.5 and elevated androgen levels. Oftentimes, this is treated with spironolactone or oral contraceptive medicine. So we went a little bit backwards, but now let's talk about primary amenorrhea. What is What are the most common causes of that and kind of its definition? So primary amenorrhea is no menses after age 15 or three years after the start of breast development. So we talked about 10 or 3 aligns pretty well with, with menarche. So if you're getting quite a lot past where you've hit Tanner age or Tanner stage three, you're getting into primary amenorrhea. Okay. And what are the kind of the most common causes? So you still need to think about pregnancy. And then you need to think about what could be going on with uh, the uterus. So you, you can have gonadal dysgenesis, and the most common form of that would be Turner syndrome. So if you have uh, a patient with short stature, you know, some of the common signs are a shield-shaped chest. You might have some learning disability. Um, you might have some neck webbing, but you may not. And you, you may have a mosaic of Turner, and you not, might not have as many of the classic signs. But I do get a karyotype um, okay. if we do have primary amenorrhea as oh. part of the testing. Okay. Anything else that we should be... And then androgen insensitivity, so where you actually have an XY patient and they actually have breast development but not adrenarche. I see. Okay. So that's very uncommon. I've uh-huh. never seen one of those, but that can happen. Which I feel like might yeah. be common on the board, right? Might be. Because might that's be. what they like mm-hmm. to do. I don't know. They might like to look at that. And then I think about anatomical things. A very rare thing might be an imperforate hymen, um, and you might see that on a, a quick genital exam. You might see a bulging membrane. You might have a septum in the vagina, things like that. So. Okay. Something I'm sure you see a lot in uh, practice would be dysmenorrhea which would be kind of painful periods mm-hmm. in girls. So how do you kind of approach primary dysmenorrhea? So I first try to evaluate how much it's affecting, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, affecting the patient. So are they missing school because of their periods? Are they, you know, leaving school when their period starts? Are they missing sporting events? Are they missing family events? Because sometimes you know, girls will report painful periods, but it's really not affecting their life. And so I really try to gauge that. If you do feel like it's affecting their life, how do you go about treating that? Well, the main thing is start with NSAIDs. And I really emphasize to patients to take naproxen or ibuprofen at the very beginning of their period. So what you really want to do is block the prostaglandin cascade. And a lot of people wait until they're having a lot of pain. And this can extend to nausea, backache, you know, very global symptoms because of the prostaglandin cascade. So you want to give an adequate dose, maybe up to 500 milligrams of naproxen, maybe up to six or 800 milligrams of ibuprofen and take it regularly scheduled for the first 24 to 48 hours of the period. Mm -hmm. And most girls have good success with that. Um, As you're thinking about dysmenorrhea, a lot of times it's, it's just the prostaglandins that are causing that, but you, you do need to think about whether they could have a sexually transmitted infection, cervicitis, pelvic inflammatory disease. Uh, When would you start like oral contraceptive, oral contraceptives for dysmenorrhea? You know, if, if, if the patient requests them, okay. they request some relief. If they are missing a lot of school, if it's accompanied by very heavy periods, uh-huh. I think those are all good reasons to think about oral contraceptives. Or some girls will go on to Depo-Provera. 
You discussed considering uh, STIs as a cause of their dysmenorrhea. What are their uh, other secondary dysmenorrhea causes? Are there? Well, I would think about endometriosis, and that would be, um, you know, if they're not responding well to NSAIDs. Um, or even oral contraceptives. And that would be, you know, a referral to a gynecologist um, and yeah, looking into it a little further that way. Okay. So I get I get very confused on all these words. So we're going to do these for everyone else at home, but really it's just for me. Menorrhagia is what? Menorrhagia is heavy or prolonged bleeding. Okay. So it's a lot of, a lot of bleeding. A lot of bleeding. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about med- metorrhagia? Metorrhagia... So metro, kind of, you think about timing. Okay. So it's just irregular intervals, irregular okay. bleeding. Okay. What about menometroaja? Okay, so <laughs> menometroaja is heavy bleeding and irregular bleeding. Oh, okay. So that's okay. the whole shebang. Okay. And then polymenorrhea? Uh, that is just, I think, frequent yeah, period. Too much. So okay. less than every 21 days. Okay. And sometimes... With adolescents, you have to pull out a calendar and be extremely specific because really a lot of adolescents believe that they should have a period every month. So they're kind of expecting, I will have a period on the 6th of each month. But I have to explain to them, you know, normal can be from the first day of one period to the first day of the next. It can be as little as 21 days. So some months you may have two. Or it can be as much as 35 days. And so a lot of this is education. You know, it might be five weeks between periods, and that's okay. So you might have 10 periods a year, or you might have 14 14 or 15 periods a year. So, I'm sure they love hearing that. (laughs) All right, let's talk a little bit about vaginal discharge and STIs, because these are common in our adolescents, Mm -hmm. I guess would be the best word. So let's start with vaginal discharge as a whole. What are kind of your differential diagnoses? So I try to think about categories. So first of all, there's just physiologic leucorrhea, which is a very normal vaginal discharge. It can vary through the menstrual cycle. And so education for patients, if if it's if it seems to be kind of normal, really there's no odor to it. Um, usually it's clear or a little bit white. And it can be copious, you know, around ovulation. So the next thing I think about is overgrowth syndrome. So bacterial vaginosis, on the one hand, and then yeast vaginitis on the other hand. Uh, bacterial vaginosis can be, you know, fishy odor, can be kind of nonspecific, it can be fairly copious also, not necessarily sexually transmitted at all. Yeast vaginitis, on the other hand, can be very itchy, can cause a lot of discomfort, can usually be thick and white and sometimes, sometimes chunky. Okay. But again, adolescents don't always have the greatest powers of description, so you can't always tell from a description. And then I think about sexually transmitted infections, specifically trichomonas, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. Okay. If they gave us this thing that I know you actually do a lot because I've done them with you, but I am not very good at them, the, the wet mount. Right. So the easiest thing to do with teenagers is have them do a self-swab okay. in um and then look at it under the microscope. So you don't necessarily have to do the do a vaginal exam, but they can do a self-swab, and that can give you a lot of information. You can see, in the case of bacterial vaginosis, you can see clue cells and a copious amount of bacteria. With um, yeast, if you do a KOH prep on your, on your wet prep, you can see yeast. And then if you see a lot of leukocytes, a lot of inflammatory cells, you may be pointing yourself toward chlamydia or gonorrhea. 
And uh, what is the treatment for gonorrhea and chlamydia? Do you treat both? So if I if I see a lot of inflammatory cells and they have a history of unprotected sex or maybe even a history of previous sexually transmitted infections, I go ahead and treat empirically. Okay. The thing you need to figure out is whether you're worried about pelvic inflammatory disease, and that's your first step. If they report any abdominal pain, uh, fever, chills, vomiting, diarrhea, um, but specifically abdominal pain, you really do need to do a bimanual exam. You might want to do a speculative exam and look and see how much inflammation is on the cervix, but you need to do a bimanual exam and see if there's any cervical motion tenderness, and then you're going to be treating PID okay. instead of just vaginitis or cervicitis. Okay. But if you're just treating cervicitis, it's pretty simple. For, for gonorrhea, you need to treat with both ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And that covers chlamydia mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, so, so like the azithromycin covers the chlamydia. And then you might or may not may or may not add some metronidazole, which would cover a trichomonas infection. Okay. Which you might also see on wet prep, I forgot to mention. <laughs> it's time for buzzwords. Let's talk bacterial vaginosis. This is caused by Gardnerella vaginalis. It is a non-STD cause of vag- vaginal discharge. You should think fishy odor, whiff test, and clue cells seen under microscopy. So again, bacterial vaginosis. Think fishy smell, whiff test, and clue cells under the microscope. Now for trichomonas vaginalis, which I feel like they often try and trick you on, trichomonas is a STD. It's actually the most prevalent non-viral STD in the United States. It causes a frothy yellow discharge and a strawberry cervix. So that's gross, but think about frothy yellow discharge, strawberry cervix in trichomonas vaginalis. The treatment for trichomonas is metronidazole. And remember to treat their partners. If you have a a patient come in and she's been having vaginal discharge, abdominal pain, and she's starting to have some systemic symptoms like you talked about, fever, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, things like that. But now it's like upper, right upper quadrant pain. What kind of things thing are you most worried about? So I am worried about pelvic inflammatory disease. And there's another entity where the liver capsule can actually be inflamed. And um, this is called uh, Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome. I... Uh... This is a, I like, I'm kind of sad that I never get to have a disease named after me anymore because we don't do that anymore, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad it's not this one, you know, like I didn't want (laughs) PID that's gone to your liver to be named after me. So Fitzhugh Curtis took that one for us. So Fitzhugh Curtis can be associated with either, either chlamydia or gonorrhea. Okay. And do you treat it the same? Classic board question. It is. Okay. (laughs) Do you treat it? This person probably needs inpatient management, you think? I would say typically it, you Way back in the day when I was in training, we admitted all adolescents with pelvic inflammatory disease. We were just really worried about compliance and we were worried about, you know, tubal scarring and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's changed a lot since then. But I would say if they're, if they're fairly ill, I mean, I think you need to think about admission if they're, if they're vomiting, if they are really maybe not going to take their medicine. And I think in the case of maybe Fitzhugh Curtis, probably admission until they're feeling better. And what if they've had PID, you've been treating them, but they're still, like, not getting better, they're having fevers, chills. Um, at what point do you uh, consider an abdominal ultrasound? And what would you be looking yeah, for? Yeah, if you're having a lot of, of pain, if you do your bimanual exam and you have cervical motion tenderness, but maybe you also have some pain 
in the adnexa, you really think about a tubo ovarian abscess, okay. and you really need to think about a transvaginal ultrasound to look for that. Okay. And that would be more of a surgical treatment? Yes, yeah, surgical yeah. and or IV antibiotics. So that's mm-hmm. definitely a gynecologic urgency uh, consult for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we've you know covered most of it. It's pretty uh, heavy on the teenagers today. So thanks for much, so much for being with us. You're welcome.